If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Once they'd stamped off the snow and shaken down their coats, the customers of the grocer, J.M. Williams, lingered a little longer than normal to escape the chill outside. It was a very cold day in St. Austell in Cornwall in the west of England, and it was late January 1879. One of the shoppers was the 30-year-old Bob Carlyle, who'd recently settled in the town and found work as a painter. He'd been ejected from his previous job as a circus lion tamer for ill-advisedly walking drunkenly through the streets of the town with a tiger on a lead. Now what did they talk about in the shop that day? Maybe it was the weather, or perhaps matters of global import like the war against the Zulus in Africa. Today though, there was a celebrity story to chew over. The remarkable antics of a larger-than-life American who just passed through the town. That American was E.P. or Edward Payson Weston, one of the most celebrated athletes of his day, who was in the middle of the mammoth undertaking of walking 2,000 miles in 1,000 hours across England. He was a walking sensation and a huge celebrity. That very day, he'd marched through St Austell, arriving in the dead of night, before slogging on through the wintry chill to Penzance, the most westerly point on his perambulation. So the local Cornish papers devoted considerable coverage to him. It would have been hard for the customers of that store in St Austell to avoid the antics of the American power walker. Our grocer, J.M. Williams, issued a challenge to his customers. He stated that there was not a man in St Austell who could match Weston. Bob Carlyle, the tiger-walking painter, disagreed. Williams said he'd give him five shillings, or £200 in today's money, if he could walk like the American. Carlyle could not resist the challenge, but he didn't have much reason to be confident. He'd never engaged in any sort of distance-walking endeavour before, and this swarthy man of modest height had sea legs rather than walking legs. He'd spent much of his life as his sailor up to this point. And yet, Bob Carlyle won that five shillings. The very next day, he marched 50 miles, and to make things harder, he was dressed in a huge overcoat and chunky sea boots. When, of a matter of months, Carlyle was sharing the newspaper headlines with E.P. Weston for his own endurance walking, and another career for the seafarer-turned-circus-showman had opened up, that of celebrity pedestrian. From History Extra, this is the tiger tamer who went to sea. The amazing life of a Victorian sailor, showman and sportsman extraordinaire. It's the untold story of a man whose multiple careers take in trouble on the high seas, tall tales in travelling circuses, and remarkable feats of athletic endeavour. So if you want to know what life was like for sailors in the 19th century, what happened under the big top, how far sport and society were enmeshed in the period, and why wheelbarrows caused a brief nationwide brouhaha, this is the podcast series for you. 
It's a story riven with eccentricity and a little bit different from our usual fare. But please stick with it as I range far and wide across Victorian Britain and the world in the company of leading historians in the field. I'm David Musgrove and I'd like to introduce you to Bob Carlyle. This is episode one, The Life of a Dozen Men. Bob Carlyle is just such a fascinating figure. The truth is, I don't really know what to make of him. You know, he tells all these amazing stories of his life as a a lion tamer, a pedestrian, a sailor. Who knows what's true? But that's kind of what's fascinating about him. I kind of love the mystery around really, you know, where did he come from? What did he really do? He belongs in a Dickens novel, really, when you think about the circus in Dickens' hard times. He would have fitted into that really well. Well, my first response to receiving the autobiography was to Google him, and there's absolutely nothing. He's a completely forgotten figure, and yet he lived a very rich and very varied life. He's an absolutely fascinating figure and a very sort of amiable travelling companion as well. To explore Carlyle's life and the themes that play into it, I'm going to be joined in this series by a cast of historians, but I'm going to dive into the primary sources myself as well. And in that, I'm helped immeasurably by the fact that our subject provides his own testimony in the form of not one, but two autobiographies. He packed a lot into life. A reporter on the Dundee Chronicle in 1906 summed it up handsomely. He was... A man who in his 60-odd years has crowded adventures and experiences sufficient for a dozen men. But Bob Carlyle's fame has now faded. Even the local history society in his hometown haven't got him on their radar. So how did I come across him? Well, a few years back, I was thinking of trying to run from Land's End to John O'Groats. Full disclosure, I never actually did it, but I did think about it. Anyway, while I was thinking about it, I took a look at the history of the idea of going from the bottom of Britain to the top, and I came across this chap called Bob Carlyle. I was intrigued by what I found. And then I saw a quote in one of these newspaper reports where he said he'd written a book. So I popped over to the British Library site, typed in his name, and sure enough, there it was. In fact, there were two books, two autobiographies. So next time I was passing the British Library in London, I ordered one of those. And the fragile four-page pink pamphlet immediately had me hooked. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. So a few days later, I was back to look at the second autobiography. I was directed to the rare books room, which always adds an extra frisson of excitement. I was advised that it was a special title to be read only under supervision. So obviously you're onto something good. And the book is good. It's brilliant. It's a goldmine of Victorian history. I could not turn it into a podcast. Let me quickly sketch out the basic story of the man's life. Robert, or Bob Carlyle, was born on the 29th of December, 1848. His life stretched across much of the reign of Queen Victoria, who died in 1901, and all of that of her son and successor, King Edward VII, who died in 1910. Carlyle himself was born and died in Scotland, but in between times he travelled far and wide, in Britain and across the globe. His two autobiographies, written in 1887 and 1896 respectively, relate many of his adventures. The first, to my mind at least, is a much more honest and personal reflection, with a willingness to share failings about drinking and guilt about having committed domestic abuse. The second reads as much more of an adventure tale. Seems like it's written with a much more public-facing take, presumably to sell copies to an audience yearning for the extraordinary. Hull University's Professor Valerie Sanders is an expert in Victorian life writing, so I asked her for a quick summary of how common it was for people to pen their stories in this period. It was really common. In fact, I think I'd go so far as to say it was one of their favourite forms of writing along with autobiography, biography, memoir, there are all kinds of life writing, as are diaries and correspondence. It was written by both men and women, perhaps men initially more than women, and also by people of all classes. So there's a lot of working class autobiography. And it's therefore quite a democratic form in many ways. People simply sit down to tell the story of their life. And I think there was a a strong interest both in telling lives and reading about them. It was a good way of finding out about famous people, but also about ordinary people. So it's a really popular form. And I think it really peaks in the 19th century. Some of them were also meant to be kind of exemplary. In other words, that there were autobiographies that said, this is how I came to be famous. And there's a collection of biographies edited by Samuel Smiles, who brought them together, called Self Help, published in 1859. And it's a collection of successful lives, how you too could be famous, how you could come to be confident in some field or other, whether it was a practical one or writing, whatever it is. He's showing how people from quite often fairly humble backgrounds became successful and famous. That's why people wanted to read them. And I think they're like self-help books that we see today, suggesting to people that if you read about other people's lives and how they were successful, you too could do the same. So why did Bob Carlyle write his story? Well, maybe he'd heard of Samuel Smiles, who was born in Haddington half a century before Carlyle grew up there. Maybe he felt that he too could offer some self-help advice. Looking closer at Carlyle's first autobiography, The book is more of a pamphlet than a book, really. It's just a few pages of densely packed type on very light pink paper. There's a lot of detail, but not much by way of literary flourish. The second is a much longer affair, properly bound, 
It starts with a photograph of the man himself, wearing a bushy goatee beard and a sailor's cap, and the title page reads, A Real Life's Romance, or 29 Years' Travel by Land and Sea, with the subtitle, The Checkered Life of Bob Carlyle, Painter, Seaman, Railway Man, Circus Clown, Circus Proprietor, Advance Agent, Lion Tamer, Showman. So he's listed eight different careers there, and by my count, he's missed a couple more off as well. So that pretty much backs up the title of this episode about his living the lives of a dozen men. Carlyle tells us himself why he wrote that second volume. Dear readers, my object in writing is not for the sake of notoriety, but to state plainly to the present and rising generations the story of reality and romance, of light and shade, of good and evil, a strange contradiction, a life of realised dreams and fulfilled wishes of ambition and failure. So it's pretty Victorian in style and substance, and with a, a current of fatalism running through it. I asked Valerie Sanders for her take on the differences between the two autobiographies, and for Carlyle's motives for putting pen to paper. It's true that the two things that bother him in the shorter one, he refers to some great blunders in his life. And it's interesting to guess what those are, but he's clearly concerned about religion. Is he going to be saved? Has he blown his chances of going to heaven? And the other thing is, is the drinking, that he knows that he behaves worse when he's been drinking. And he is writing this as if to say, I'm aware that I've got these problems. I am trying to do something about him. It's almost as if he's writing it to more of a religious format than you get in the longer autobiography. He's saying the things you're supposed to say, I should read the Bible, I should get closer to God, I should stop drinking. He does mention those things in the longer one as well, but you can lose sight of them very easily because he's talking about so many other things. So I think it's more like the sort of, the short one is like the sort of autobiography that maybe he felt people expected of him, uh, autobiography of repentance really and self-discipline. Carlyle tells us a lot about his life in his autobiographies, but he's more open on some matters than others. One area where he is definitely not forthcoming is dates. He very rarely clearly states when something actually happened. Luckily, we've got the newspapers and the family history records to try to match things up. Let's take a look at the newspapers first. They provide a very rich stream of information for Bob Carlyle. So I put in a call to Edgehill University's Dr. Bob Nicholson, an expert on Victorian newspapers, among other things, and I asked him to contextualise for us just how important papers were in 19th century society. It's hard to think of another cultural form that is more important than them. You know, they're part of everything. So they're crucial to its politics. It's where all the political news is coming through. They're the key way that people find out about not just the wider world, but what's going on on their doorstep. But there are also places where all sorts of other forms of culture was published. Things like jokes, short stories, recipes, gardening columns, things aimed at children. Almost all aspects of Victorian culture are filtered through those periodicals. And for historians, you know, they're absolutely crucial for understanding Victorian life. You know, what, what did the Victorians think about a certain topic? What were they doing at any given time? What were they worried about? What were they fascinated by? It's all in the newspapers. And then there are the genealogical resources birth, marriage and death certificates, census returns, that sort of thing. So armed of all those sources, we know that Bob's early life was by turns serene and then tragic. He was born right at the end of 1848 in Edinburgh. His parents were David and Margaret, but he didn't grow up with them. 
Instead, he was sent, at the age of three, to live with his grandparents on his mother's side, in Haddington, a town a little way outside Edinburgh. He very much respected his grandfather, who was a land steward to a local worthy. However, when Bob was ten, his grandfather died. That was in May 1860, and his grandmother followed him to the grave the next year in June 1861. I suppose I was about ten years of age when my grandfather died. That was a severe blow to me. Twelve months after, my grandmother died, and I was sent to lodgings for a short time. How cold the world looked then. My father took me to live with him in Coldstream, but I would not stop there. Thrown by the death of his much-loved grandfather and grandmother, it must have been hard for young Bob to return to live with his father. Even worse, his mother had very recently died in 1859, and a baby sister of his had also passed away that year as well. So it's a quadruple tragedy in very short order. I can't tell you when Bob found out about this or how he felt, because he makes no reference to these losses in either autobiography. We've just got the death certificates to tell us. But you've got to imagine that it was a very tough time for him to lose sister, mother and grandparents in quick succession. So why would he make no reference to his mother or sister's deaths in either of his autobiographies? It seems really weird to not talk about it. Is this just the Victorian stiff upper lip in action? I asked Valerie Sanders to explain where the emotion has gone. Autobiographers tend to divide into those that want to describe deaths and bereavements in great detail and those that can't face it, or for reasons of propriety or just feeling that it might put people off reading it, don't go into a lot of detail. And possibly with men, there is this pressure to be manly, to accept that bad things happen. And also, of course, death of children, for example, was far more common then than it is now. So it was not all that unusual for a child to die. In, in any class, really, there was a, an Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1850s, Archbishop Archibald Tate, who writes about the deaths of five of his daughters, and they all died within a few weeks of each other. And so he talks about them at great length. He was very emotional about it. He can't stop thinking about them. But... He's a man of the church. You could say he should have accepted that God sometimes takes back people that have been given to you. So there's a big range, this big spectrum around autobiographers who are prepared to dwell on the deaths of children and those who are not. And I think really that Bob Carlyle comes within the normal spectrum, really, in declining to say too much about it. It was either because he was still too moved to write about it or because the opposite, really, that these things happen and he didn't want to indulge his own feelings by talking about it. In December 1861, Bob's father remarried to a woman called Janet Laurie. We can only guess at Bob's feeling about that, but we do know that he didn't stay at Coldstream for his teenage years and instead returned to his grandparents' former village and managed to get lodgings and schooling there, funded by a legacy left by his grandfather. That's a pretty gutsy move by a teenage boy, and as we'll see, Bob's life is punctuated by these sort of bold, sometimes rash, decisions. One thing we need to tease out here is what class Bob would have seen himself as belonging to, and how others might have seen it as well. His grandfather was able to give him several hundred pounds in inheritance, and as a land steward, held a managerial role, whereas a groom, his father's occupation, was much more of a working class role. So there'd been a step down in status there, I wondered what class Valerie Sanders would put Bob Carlyle in. 
I think he would be regarded as working class because he isn't in any of the professions apart from perhaps when he's in the Merchant Navy. But one of the things he kept going back into was circuses and menageries. And he became a lion tamer. He was a clown at various times. And he could often fall back on circus work when other things failed. Whether that deserves to be another kind of class altogether, that's entertainment, travelling circuses, travelling menageries. Uh, he's almost sort of so individual that he doesn't fit any, any sort of categories or slots. So working class, yes, but unusual even for the working class. He belongs in a Dickens novel, really, when you think about the circus in Dickens's hard times. He would have fitted into that really well. And, or in The Old Curiosity Shop, he's a kind of itinerant entertainer. So showbiz, maybe, he might be categorised now. The next few years of Bob's life were, at his own admission, somewhat indolent with much of his time spent looking around and building castles in the air. Though he did learn some carpentry and painting skills, which he employed in later years. The one thing that did excite him was travelling circuses. He tells us that he was in a state of intense excitement whenever a circus or menagerie was nearby, and he would travel for miles to seek out their wagons. It seems a little as if he was marking time, waiting for an opportunity to find adventure. And it was adventure he sought on the high seas, because at the age of 16, he signed up for the Royal Navy. In the next episode, we'll examine his life as a sailor. But before we finish, and seeing as I was chatting to a professor of English literature, I thought I'd ask Valerie Sanders for her views on the literary merits of Carlyle's work. I wouldn't give it an A star. Tough audience. I'd probably give it a B plus because it's telling a good story. His language can be very repetitive. He keeps saying the same things. He's going to do this and he's going to do that. He's not particularly inventive with language, but he's interesting to read because of the personality that's there. His personality comes through. I think it's an extraordinary story that he tells, and I think it should be published as an autobiography. I think people should have, I mean, republished for today's readers. It should be on a life writing module, which some universities teach, because you get the sense of a really strong personality, a real adventurer, somebody who perhaps overturns a lot of our ideas about the formality of the Victorians. And he's a man with a lot of, not just personality, but emotions, feelings, and very willing to confess to his faults. He knows he's not lived a particularly virtuous life. It worries him towards the end of his life that that might catch up with him. He'd like to have been a better person. But that's very human. We, we like confessions nowadays of people who say, I've not been a good person all my life, but I'm aware of it. And I'm telling you what I did because you might enjoy it and you might learn something from it. Unless you're thinking of embarking on a career in the Navy, running away to the circus or becoming a world-class endurance athlete, you might not find that many life lessons to take from Bob Carlyle's story. But hopefully you will enjoy what unfolds over the next few episodes and get a better understanding of some fascinating aspects of 19th century life, which Carlyle's life intersects with. Next time, we'll be on the high seas. That was episode one of History Extra's The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea. If you'd like to know more about Victorian life writing and you're a History Extra member, you can watch an extended bonus interview with Professor Valerie Sanders on the website. Go to historyextra.com forward slash tiger hyphen tamer hyphen series to access that. This is a History Extra production, researched, written and hosted by me, David Musgrove. My colleagues Rhiannon Davis, Ellie Cawthorn, Eleanor Evans and Rob Attar improved the script. 
Dr. Bob Nicholson kindly gave it a read through, and the producer was Jack Bateman. My experts in this series are Professor Valerie Sanders, Dr. Bob Nicholson, Dr. Anne-Marie McAllister, Dr. Martin Wilcox, Dr. John Wolfe, and Professor Dave Day. Thanks also to Sarah Williams, editor of Who Do You Think You Are magazine, for her help with untangling the genealogy. I'm also grateful to Chris Godfrey-Morell and Ken Bogle of Midlovian Council Library Service for helping to find the Black collection in their archive. I owe thanks to Craig Statham, formerly of East Lovian Archives, and Hanita Ritchie in the John Gray Centre there, who helped me to track down some local records in East Lovian, Lisa D. Tommaso, librarian at the Murab Library in Penzance, and Linda Camage of the Penwith Local History Group were also generous with their time. The Museum of Cornish Life in Helston put me in touch with the wheelwright, Terry Ansell, who helped me to understand more about Victorian wheelbarrows generally. Numerous other historians answered curious questions from me, including Dr. Richard Scully, Professor Nicholas Croson, Professor Rosalind Crone, and Dr. Vanessa Heggie. Finally, if you're interested in studying archive newspaper sources yourself, as a History Extra podcast listener, you can get a 10% discount on subscription to the British Newspaper Archive. Just go to britishnewspaperarchive.co.uk and use the code BNAHIST24 at checkout. And that offer is valid until 31 July 2024. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.